spend hours in your head thinking about something that happened, could have happened, or might happen? Do you ask others what to do so you don't make a mistake? Welcome to the Plain It's Safe podcast. I am Dr. Z, your host. I am a clinical psychologist, an author, and a person that is super passionate about sharing with you science-based skills to overcome any type of fear-based struggles. Who doesn't experience fear? Who doesn't play it safe? In this show, we will discuss how fear-based reactions happen in day-to-day life, how playing it safe behaviors look like, sound like, and feel like, how you can put into action solid tips from behavior science to get unstuck from worries, fears, obsessions, and anxieties, and how you can start doing what works, what matters, and what you care about. Behavioral science doesn't have to be boring. Thanks for listening, and let's get started. Jason, thank you so much for chatting with me in the podcast Playing It Safe. Thank you for having me. I want to start by saying congratulations on your new book, Everything is an Emergency. I am super excited to see your book published, and I would love to hear about the creative process you went through when working on it. Absolutely. It actually started as a form of exposure therapy, or not, it wasn't exactly exposure therapy, but it was something that I was doing to keep myself honest. When I started doing really intense exposure therapy, I wanted to feel accountable. And so I started, the chapter that I started with was the one about ERP and about touching my shoes and touching my face. So I started making those comics so that I could really feel like I was almost to have a sense of control over the whole thing. And I thought that it might be nice to tell the story. And from there, I got more ambitious about it and I pitched it as a book. But also, I wanted to make this book so that I had this thing I was working on that was a story about a kind of recovery. And I thought that it would help me stick to doing the therapy. And it did. It actually kind of worked. I wasn't sure that it would, but it was helpful. Your book is a beautiful story about the process you went through doing exposure response prevention. The way I see it, it's a story from the inside out about facing your fears. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about how writing the story helped you to be accountable with exposure response prevention? I do write a bit in the book about dabbling in ERP when I was a teenager. I also, I don't write about this, but I did briefly try an SSRI when I was in high school, but it was so brief that I didn't really feel much and I didn't want to do it anymore. I think that I spent a lot of time being afraid of taking the pills because of potential side effects, afraid of doing exposure therapy because it's quite difficult. So I would take these half measures, you know, I would go home and I would have my homework doing something that felt contaminated to me touching my shoes, touching my face was a really entry level one that I that I did in high school. And I would just stop doing it because it was hard. And because I wasn't feeling that kind of jolt of euphoria that comes with getting over your early ones. I think that it's really important in ERP to feel that first success to prove to yourself with a little one. Oh, I never thought I'd be able to do that. Now I can. And I just wasn't getting over that first hump. Mm-hmm. And It did feel like doing the book helped me get over that first hump. The one that really was exciting for me was sitting on a 
public toilet seat, public restroom toilet seat for the first time. That was a thing that I just didn't see myself doing. And when I did, I thought, wow, something's really changing here. I can see how working on the book and writing your story gave you the motivation and the courage to face the most challenging exposure exercises, like using a public restroom. How did you decide to use comics as a way to share your story? Comics is the language that I feel most comfortable speaking. One thing that was actually interesting to me is that as I began to show friends and family passages from the book, they said, that's what it felt like. And to me, I was like, oh, you were there, or I thought I explained it. But in fact, this is the best way that I know how to tell this story and how to explain this stuff. And so because I love comics and because I spend all my time thinking about how would you say this with a drawing or how would you make the words and the pictures dance in just the right way to give somebody the feeling of what this thing is. And because that's my background, I was excited to be able to tell a really personal story using these tools that I've sharpened in my professional life. And so. I think that I felt more confident doing it this way than any other way. When reading your book, I saw how natural it was for you to share your story as a comic. One of the fears that we all struggle with, but we may struggle more when we are creating something, is this fear about making mistakes and not doing things right and perfect. So how did you handle those fears if they were popping up in your mind? Something that I think is kind of funny about the medium of comics is that you get a chance to start over and over again with every page and with every panel. I was never excited about being a painter. Mm -hmm. I, I thought about it because I've always drawn, I've always made art, but this notion of you just have this one image and it's you spend weeks, months, years making a few images never really gelled for me. Whereas with a comic, it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, you kind of need to embrace that because it's so many images that you just need to keep going. And if you make a mistake, you can come back and edit, but there's just so much to keep working on that it really feels like the perfect medium for somebody who is compulsive, who behaves compulsively. I think that I did redraw every drawing in this book, almost every drawing, mm -hmm. but Another thing that I really love about cartoon illustration is that there is this vulnerability and kind of confessional quality of it where I love to see the way that somebody's hand moves. And so I don't think of the mistakes in comics as a bug, but as a feature. Like I, I love reading other people's stories and seeing how they draw a thing and how they try and solve a visual problem and where you come up short or fail visually, I think is part of it. And so I say that I talk a big game, but I also do look back at the book and go, oh, I would have drawn this differently. I would have drawn this differently. I do think that the charm of the medium is that vulnerability and, and seeing those mistakes and that lack of perfection. It's helpful to hear how you think of mistakes as part of the comic as a feature versus thinking of mistakes as something to avoid at all costs. Here is a curiosity that pops in my mind. Given the way you think about mistakes, how do you know when your work is ready to be published? Oh, you don't. It's just a leap of faith. That's very interesting to hear you talking about it in this way. Because another fear that we all struggle with is the fear of uncertainty. The fear of not knowing how things are going to be. The creative work I do is one of my havens from OCD. I know that I said that comics are 
perfect for my compulsive tendencies, but I also do feel pretty peaceful about this stuff. And it's one of the only places where I've had a rather uncomplicated relationship to it. And with a few exceptions, anxieties don't really intrude into my feelings about making this kind of work. And when they do, I, I feel like really territorial about it, actually. I'm like, intrusive thought, you're coming into my creative work zone. No, you go over and hang out with every other part of my life. But I do feel that I've made this space that feels more comfortable. And probably it has something to do with control. Also, I do feel very in control. And so maybe there's this contract where the degree of control I feel gets to balance out the uncertainty that I need to make peace with. And it's never really done. And it's never really perfect because it is mine. Will it be different if the fear of uncertainty shows up in other areas in your life that are not related to your art? Well, I have a lot of compulsions that are related to that. I mean, I've heard OCD as diagnosed as just a a fear of uncertainty. Uh, That's one way of looking at it. And so the way that that bears out in compulsive behaviors for me is I've done a lot of seeking reassurance. And so asking friends if this is okay, no, wait, is this okay? Was it okay? Is it really okay? Checking, a whole bunch of checking. Social media is bad for checkers. And I definitely do a lot of checking. With contamination fears, a lot of washing and avoidant behavior. Because if you don't go to the party, then you can be sure that you won't contract the virus that you're afraid of. I think it's a lot of tendencies that are kind of self-isolating as well, because I think that the only way to be certain that you're not going to be offensive or a monster or contaminated or hurt people, et cetera, et cetera, is to avoid. And to avoid is to cordon yourself off and to be alone. You are speaking of one of the biggest challenges we face with avoidant behaviors, which is that they do work in the short term. We all experience a short relief when avoiding a situation. The challenge is when we start avoiding all the stuff that we care about and the people we love. Now that you have done ERP and you have published your book, what has changed for you? Two things come to mind. One is that ERP really feels like I can exhale and be more at peace and be more at peace socially, which is really nice. It really means a lot that I can go away for the weekend somewhere and feel more adventurous and say yes to more activities. But also, I think that doing ERP is a lot of learning to really focus on what your values are and how you might be violating those values with OCD behaviors. And one thing that I've realized is how much my values tend toward community. And I do think that the upshot of doing this therapy is just feeling really clear that what's important to me are the people I love and that this cutting off this isolation from those people makes me sad because it's really important for me to feel connected. And now more than ever, when when it's really difficult for us to see each other in person, finding ways to feel connected is a priority of mine. Can we hear more about how you discovered what was important to you? I got a worksheet and I and I put this in the book, in fact, but I got this worksheet and, and it says, what are your values? How would you rate these things in terms of importance? These questions, these very simple questions that I kind of scoffed at before I did the worksheet, but it felt really clarifying to just put all this stuff down. And I think kind of just waking up and going, what are your values in the morning or looking at one of those worksheets is, it was more powerful than I thought it would end up being. 
I think there is a difference between facing our fears because it matters to us versus facing what we are afraid of just because the sake of approaching. Now, one of the things that happens is that even though we may have done 1,000 exposures, our mind may still come up with some of those sticky thoughts. Let's imagine for a moment that you go to a party and you're getting ready to hug a person. And here is a thought in your mind that says, Jason, you cannot hug this person. You may get contaminated. How will you handle that thought? Well, I've learned to treat those as opportunities and to do sort of opposite action. If something does feel like OCD and I feel pretty good at identifying pretty quickly when that's happening, then that just means it's an exposure opportunity. I got to hug that person twice Mm -hmm. if they want to, if they want to, of course. I got to go to that place and do that thing. I absolutely do. I mean, if if I have that knee-jerk fear response, that is just a sign, sometimes with a bit of a sigh or a groan, sometimes more with a sense of humor about it. But when I feel that, like, oh, I don't want to do that, it's like, well, now you definitely have to do that. I love to hear how you think of those sticky moments as opportunities to check if they're OCD-related or not. Now, because the brain could latch into anything and everything as an obsession and as a compulsion, how would you distinguish a random thought that could be distressing from an obsession? Ooh, great question. And you're right, because it is so malleable that sometimes it's weird. I I do write in the book about when I was a little kid, I used to pick up every piece of trash on the ground. And I tried to get out of that. And the way that I did that was thinking, trash is dirty. Don't pick up dirty things. And then what happened is that my brain was like, okay, fine. Well, then be really on guard against things that are dirty. And so it really, it did the inversion of what the fear was before, but it continued, I continued to have these obsessive ruminations. So how do I identify them? Well, I think that learning about myself has been really helpful for that too, because I have a thought and then I need to evaluate, is this actually me? Am I having this thought or is this the part of me that's maybe overactive and trying to protect me? Mm-hmm. And so there's that refrain, it's not me, it's my OCD. Time is something that I learned in group therapy too. You kind of go, okay, is this going to still be bothering me in 20 minutes, in an hour, tomorrow? Sometimes something feels really pressing and I suspect that it might be OCD this thought I should do this to make sure that I didn't hurt this person or offend this person or whatever it is. And then if I go, can it wait until tomorrow? Sometimes I'll sleep on it and I'll wake up and it'll be easier to look at that and go, oh, that was definitely OCD. And so sometimes something that feels really intense in the moment is easier to see in retrospect because it's true that when you're immediately seized with this kind of thought, it feels real. And I think that the other thing is just that sense of trust because I've learned that things that feel real aren't necessarily real emergencies. Jason, those are very helpful tips for any person dealing with obsessions. Just to do a mini recap, you shared that you will give the thoughts some time and you will wait before doing anything. You will also check if you are having the thought or is your brain that it's overworking coming up with a thought. And it seems that by putting all those skills into action, you learn that not every single thought that pops up in your mind is an emergency. Those are very powerful skills. There is something counterintuitive about them. 
on the sense that you are questioning how a thought works for you. You're questioning the veracity of thinking. Do you mind sharing a little bit more? How did you go from having a thought that feels like the absolute truth to recognize it as an obsession? A lot of therapy and Mm -hmm. and specifically exposure and response prevention therapy, because that does such a great job of convincing your brain that you're actually choosing to do this threat. If I've decided for years that something is real and really going to hurt me, something like, for example, sitting on that toilet seat, that public restroom toilet seat, and then I do it and I repeatedly do it and I can demonstrate to myself in real time and over a matter of weeks that I have elected to do this thing that my brain has in the past warned me is going to be terrible and I will face these horrific consequences and then that doesn't happen, then all of a sudden I've established a new precedent for, oh, this thing feels real and feels like a threat. But I have shown myself that it is not and that sometimes the alarms can be sounding a little bit too loudly and the fears can be a bit distorted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it takes it takes work. It takes physical work. It's definitely a lot of work to face our fears. If a teenager is listening to this podcast or a teenager reads your book, what would you like them to know about exposure work? That is actually the reason that I made this book, because when I was a teenager and I was diagnosed, it felt very scary, but it didn't just feel scary. It also felt hopeless. I was reading these testimonials and in the testimonials, it was people who it was really bad. You know, they say like it was my wedding day and I could only think about washing my hands or I would wake up in the middle of the night to clean battery acid off the road because my thing is battery acid. I remember these. These haunt me. And I also had this picture of recovery as you either have no obsessive thoughts and no compulsive behaviors or you just have it really bad. Like, I guess I thought of it as a switch that you can either switch on or off, rather sick or well. And what I've learned over the years is that it is something that if you put in a, a lot of work and sometimes work that, that is scary, it can feel scary, but that you can actually really see tangible results. And I've, I've learned to appreciate that the results aren't, oh, you'll never have an obsessive thought. It's just that the obsessive thought might not have as much power over you. And so also making peace with, well, I'll have some thoughts that are irrational, but also everybody has thoughts that are irrational. And the thing about the OCD behaviors isn't that you're having these irrational thoughts that nobody else is having. It's that you take them very seriously and you're like, well, this must be true. Or what does this say about me? And so what I would say to teenagers is that don't feel like a lost cause. Actually, finding out that you have OCD is a great first step because now you can recognize this thing that feels powerful and real and like a real threat. And you can identify that these things that feel like threats are actually things that you can work on and surmount. And that if you do put in work, you will see. It takes a lot of trust too. So just trust that if you start doing the therapy, that it can be so helpful. Now, obsessions by nature are persistent, repetitive, and can show up anywhere. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that you're very protective of the times in which you are creating. 
But what happens when there is an obsession along the lines of, what if no one likes my cartoons? How would you handle that obsession that is about one of the things you care the most? The thing that I have learned to do in therapy with that is to embellish it even more. Because sometimes the way to realize that the thought is ridiculous is to make it even more over the top. And so let's keep going with that. Not only will everybody think that I'm a terrible cartoonist and a horrible writer, but they'll start burning my books in the street. And then they'll all go after me with pitchforks. And then I'll get angry letters and calls for the rest of my life. How dare you make this book about your OCD? And I'll just be infamous. I'll never be able to go anywhere without people throwing garbage at me. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Love it all the way. Thank you. We just have to go one notch up or two notches up when the mind comes with those bossy thoughts. I think about it like like the finger torture, where if you start going like, oh, don't worry, it's actually a good book. You actually make great cartoons. That's like trying to pull to get out. But if you go like, no, you're actually really terrible, then you can free yourself. That's very consistent with behavioral science and all the research on thought suppression. It feels very counterintuitive when you hear about it because there are so many messages in pop psychology about having always positive thoughts and that every time we have a negative thought, we should replace it with a positive one. The challenge is that that doesn't work. The way I think about the relationship between exposure therapy and thinking is that we are inviting you to develop a new relationship with your thoughts, a new relationship with your mind, and a relationship in which you don't take your thoughts too seriously. One thing that really made sense to me about it is that's kind of how comedy works too. And so a lot of the New Yorker cartoons I make are about, like you said, taking things up a notch or two. Like there's this cartoon I really love by Bruce Eric Kaplan, and it's just this image of two people walking out of a store and one person saying, I'm going to botch it. But I think the caption is this, I can't believe I spent $7 million on tights. I love that too. What I love about these cartoons is I think that by making something more ridiculous or by making animals talk instead of humans, it helps us see truths about ourselves easier. Because one thing that artists learn is that when you're drawing, if you hold your drawing up to a mirror, it's easier to see the mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so just by twisting something a bit, it can be really helpful. So that has really made sense to me in therapy. I relate to what you're saying on the sense that learning to take our thoughts lightly and being playful with them give us a sense of distance so we're not so consumed by them. Now, our mind doesn't run out of content. So what about those times in which your mind may come up with a fear of being an imposter as an artist? Every artist who I've ever read an interview with says that. I figure some of us are wrong about it. I also have made more peace with the fact that that feeling like other OCD loops might feel real, but that doesn't mean that it is. And so just taking this thought I'm an imposter, seriously, might not be the way to go, but I'm not going to try and reassure it or argue with it on rational terms either. I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm an imposter. Great. Everybody's about to find out. <laughs> Maybe I will wear a t-shirt that says, I am an imposter. 
I would wear that t-shirt. We will look super cool. <laughs> Let me ask you a little bit more about how you handle obsessions. One of the characteristics that makes obsessions hard to let go is that they come with a very overwhelming sensation. One of the ways that I describe it to my clients and my friends is that when dealing with obsessions, it's like you have put your fingers inside an electrical outlet. So your whole body is on shock. How do you handle those overwhelming sensations that come with an obsession? One thing that's interesting is I feel like when I had begun to try and work pretty hard on this stuff and made a bit of progress, it felt like some of the gains that I had made cognitively were sort of transferring to these physical reactions. And so kind of like whack-a-mole, right? You try and hit it over here. And then, and then I was having this really overwhelming physical panic. And the thing that's really helped me is, is Zola. It got really bad. And I would try and meditate and, and breathe and do some low-level exposures with it. So things like exerting myself physically, like doing cardio so that I can induce this feeling of panic and sit with it. And it got to a point where even though intellectually I could appreciate, okay, this is just a panic attack. It feels bad. That doesn't mean that it's actually an emergency. It still, it was really interrupting my life and the SSRIs really helped. They just really helped me feel physically more in control again. It also put me in a place where I could seek out things that were more physically uncomfortable because I felt more regulated. But yeah, that one I really would attribute to Zoloft. I appreciate your sharing with us your experience dealing with these overwhelming bodily sensations. For valid reasons, there are many concerns with the reactions that you could have when taking medications. The challenge is that if you have a physiological vulnerability that affects your nervous system and makes your body to be on edge, it's really hard to capitalize the benefits from therapy. Let me switch gears a little bit. The name of the podcast is Playing It Safe. And playing it safe are all those behaviors we do to either approach a situation with safety crutches or the actions we do to escape from a situation that is too scary to us. So one of the ways that we play it safe is by procrastinating, by postponing. Do you do any of those things? Apparently no with my work. I don't know why. Maybe because I am so bullish about going in the other direction. Maybe it's just that I don't want to look down. Like I will send an email. I don't know if you noticed in our email exchange too. I just, I send them very quickly or I won't send them at all. So I feel like those are the two options and I don't agonize or double check. I, I also, I kind of love editing. It's one of my favorite parts of my creative work. And so maybe because I just really love it so much and think of it as part of the art, mm -hmm. I don't consider it to be a crutch that's standing in the way of the thing being in the world. I love to redraw and I love to look at the words and images and go, what could be changed? What could be better? And then I don't know, because I appreciate that as its own separate part of the process. I think it's easier to feel like, all right, I have edited this page. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is it, it helps to have people outside of me look at it and also say, this is done. What about if you have a deadline? Will you handle things differently? 
Oh, I love a deadline. <laughs> that was such a natural response. <laughs> I mean, I, I work very quickly. I get kind of impatient sometimes. <laughs> I get excited about a gig. I really profoundly love what I do and I do it all the time and I draw pretty quickly and I write pretty quickly. So I'll be like, okay, what's next? And having a deadline is great because then the other person's like, where is it? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm working on it. Like, here's a sketch. Here's a draft. Those are some of the gigs that I quite enjoy. Well, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> I think it's very clear you like deadlines. <laughs> When playing it safe, another common behavior is checking multiple times what we are doing. Or if you are creating something, you may edit it over and over. Do you relate to that? I know with drawing that the blank page is really intimidating. And so if you just start putting marks down, all of a sudden, I, I forget where I got this advice, but all of a sudden, if you start just dirtying up the page, then you need to correct those marks and have them relate to other marks. All of a sudden, it becomes editing and not creating. And in fact, I don't know that I really think of the work that I make as creating. I think of it as curating. I kind of think of the whole thing as editing. And so the beginning of the editing process is putting down whatever is the first thought. Mm -hmm. Then you sort of mold that material and you make the drawing that feels like the drawing. And then I draw over that. And, and I just, I'm redoing this more and more until I feel like it's getting closer to the thing that I want it to be. That idea of like making something from nothing, I think that's what's so intimidating for people. Like I have to produce this thing. I have to give birth to this paragraph, but I don't tend to feel that way. I mean, when I do, I, I get why that is a feeling that is a big deterrent for people making work because what is scarier than introducing something new into the world? But if you're editing, I mean, as long as you like it, then you kind of get to always be editing. So. I guess to answer your question, I should edit my answer to make it, you know, uh, more pithy right now. But I, I guess that I just think of it all as editing. I love hearing about the frame you're holding when drawing. Not too much like a creating process, but more like an editing and curating one. Now, would you mind sharing a bit more about that? My day job of making New Yorker cartoons, it's sort of just noticing things about the world and then putting a spin on those things. And so I need to pay attention to human behavior and then find a way to show people that behavior right back to them. Mm -hmm. So a cartoon that I'm working on this week that I'm going to pitch, it's a knight and a dragon, and they're walking into a castle, and the dragon's like, okay, let's just put it all aside, we'll go have dinner, and then we'll pick this back up afterward. And so... The cartoon is just about a couple fighting, but they go to a party and they put on a happy face. Mm -hmm. And I think of the knight and the dragon as sort of archetypes for this couple fighting. But I feel like I didn't come up with a joke so much as I noticed the thing that I've done and that my friends have done. And then I tried to use the language of cartoons to reflect that. It feels way more about noticing than mm -hmm. it does about creating. Given that we're exposed to thousands of sounds, images, ideas, hypotheses, and so much more every single moment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, how do you practice noticing and how do you decide what to notice? That's what cartooning is to me. Because when I sit down, I come up with about 10 cartoons every week. 
And the way to do that is sort of, it's either to look out into the world and, and notice what was going on or to look into yourself and go, what's really on my mind this week? Like, am I thinking about this heat wave? How do I turn this heat wave? If there's a heat wave right now in, in Massachusetts where I am. And so I noticed that. I notice how that's affecting me. I wonder if maybe, you know, it turns into a cartoon where there are two people in hell and one of them is like, I knew I should have brought my air conditioner or something like that. I think that the whole process is about slowing down and taking a breath and looking around and trying to reflect the world and trying to reflect your inner world. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is the exercise. I love the idea of slowing down and noticing what's happening outside of you and inside of you. And yet, I'm a little bit curious about how you choose one idea over another one for your cartoons. Good news is that there's an infinite number of them and you only have time to do so many. So I think that that's where a deadline is really important because I only have the capacity to make so many of these things. I also think that's where a point of view is important because everything about who I am is what's going to make me notice this and not that. I feel like all of the work, this book is autobiographical, but I also feel like all of my cartoon work is autobiographical because it's just through the lens of what do I notice? Every cartoonist you're looking at, it's like, what are they noticing and what are they trying to show back to us? So really within your question, or within the answer to the question really feels like a the job description. I think you're speaking about the process of putting your personal touch in what you are creating. Now, here is my last question. If you were to have a cup of coffee or tea with any person you want, who would that be and why? James Baldwin. He's my favorite writer. And because every clip that I see in an interview with him, and everything I read from him, it's something that I need to go home and like think about for the rest of the day. I think he's a genius and I had such a beautiful way of looking at and then translating his experience of the world for other people. I would just want to talk to him about James Baldwin. What do you think about 2020? That sounds like an amazing coffee time. On that note, I want to say thank you so much for chatting with me and sharing with all of us how you overcome OCD how you handle obsessions as they pop up, and your creative process. Congratulations again on your book, Everything is an Emergency. Thank you. Thank you for reading it, and thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, I will very much appreciate it if you will subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you're feeling extra generous, I welcome a review on Apple Podcasts. Show notes of this episode are in the website Playing It Safe, that's on. Make sure to subscribe to my newsletter so you can receive more tips to stop all types of unworkable Playing It Safe actions. See you soon!